when I first came to Alaska, I realized what woods really is. There are places that practically refuses for people to get in. <laughs> like, wow, I can't step in here. <laughs> in Japan, everywhere is welcome. You can go in if you like. The natures are not that stubborn. So I feel more power. I'm Nanadan in Kendo right now, and what I'm finding out these days is that Kendo is not to overwhelm your opponent, but to communicate with your opponent and show that you care. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Masa Endo from Anchorage, Alaska, USA. Ando-sensei has been training for over 30 years, during which time he's achieved the rank of Kyoshi Nanadan in Kendo and Godan in Iaido. Ando-sensei is the instructor of the Alaskan Kendo Club, and in this stimulating conversation, we talk about his decision to move away from Japan, his motivation for studying Kendo in Iaido to connect with traditional Budo movements and culture, and the benefits and challenges of continuing his journey in a remote and harsh area of the world. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and felt Ando Sensei's dedication and commitment energizing for my own Budo pursuits. So, without further ado, please enjoy this wide ranging interview with Masa Ando Sensei from Alaska. My name is Masa Ando, and I'm originally from the city of Inuyama, it's a small city that used to have Meijimura Taikai, the very famous Hachidan Taikai, traditional Taikai, held. But it started when I left Inuyama, so I'm not really familiar with it. But Kendo people, older Kendo people, know Inuyama by that name, Meijimura Taikai. I moved to Osaka for my college, and then I moved to Anchorage, Alaska in 1982. And I've been here since, except for one year, I spent eight months in Japan trying to get my visa status back to America. So I've been here since 1982. That makes like 38 years. So much longer than living in Japan. I started Kendo when I was 10. I was sixth grade elementary school. And on my commute, I walked to school every day. There was a police academy building and a sports gym right next to it. And every day I heard the sound of beating, you know, the sound and then yelling sound. And I was really fascinated by that. And one day I decided to cross the gate and then go in and then see what's really going on. And then I saw Kendo for the first time. And no one asked me who, you, who I was and everything. So I just kept watching. And then went there several times. And one guy finally approached me, said, are you interested in kendo? I didn't know what it was. So going, oh, that's kendo. Okay. And I said, yeah. And so he taught me some basic moves and stuff. But of course, the academy is for police. So I wasn't really admitted to that or anything. He just gave me some tips. And then I was there for maybe 10, 12 days the most. And then my family moved to Inuyama. That was in, that was Nagoya. Anyway, I lived in Nagoya for six years when I was little. I was born in Nagoya and uh, lived there for six years and then moved to Inuyama. Just to be specific, where is Inuyama in, in relation to other major Japanese cities? Nagoya is in the middle part of 
Japan in Aichi Prefecture, and Inuyama is 40 kilometers north of Nagoya. It's a countryside, kind of mountain area, mountainous area, but lots of rice fields around. So uh, my house was built, my parents' house was in this suburb of 600 houses, and around was all rice field. And I commute to the nearby elementary school that took me like an hour walking. And then middle school was even farther away. So I had to bicycle down to middle school. And middle school in Japan's three years. So I spent three years in Inuyama Middle School. And then I went to nearby high school. And you're supposed to take a club activities when you are in middle school and uh, high school, and that was kendo. I spent six years in a kendo club, and then I moved to Osaka for my college. That's the Kansai University, and the Kansai University's kendo club is happened to be led by, well, it used to be Kawakami-sensei, but do you know Alex, what's his, Alex Bennett? Oh, yeah, I've heard of him, yes. Uh, okay, yeah, he's, he's active at Kansai University, he teaches Japanese culture to Japanese people. <laughs> anyway, I, he wasn't there at that time, but I went to Kansai University and I wanted to practice kendo again, but went into the club. Something didn't feel right to me at that time, so I didn't. And I spent four years in the dormitory and I started a circle, sports circle. And then we practiced kendo, went skiing, did all other stuff. So in the first two years was more kendo. And then last two years was more skiing. So my kendo history stopped somewhere around there. I graduated and then went to work for one year saved money, and then came here in Anchorage, Alaska. No kendo was here, so I spent two years studying English, and then I heard someone starting kendo. So I went to see him, and then I talked to him, and then said, oh, okay, well, let's start together. So he was already starting a partial kendo with Goju-ryu karate school students. And I went there as his first student, means the one that shows other students how to show their respect to senseis and all the reifo, reiho, and then having a command like, you know, chakza, mokso, type of thing. So other students would know it. The challenge here in the United States is the sensei needs to tell the students, oh, you're supposed to do this and that, you know, they call me sensei or, you know, you have to address me with this and that type of thing. It's kind of un unusual and unnatural. It has to come from the student. So I played the role of that. Is and this that person like, still around? No, he left in 1994, so we were there for 10 years. And right before he left, when I went to Japan, I went to see one of the taikais, and that was a Nakakura Cup taikai. Nakakura-sensei was Hanshi Kyudan in Kendo, and then Iaido, I believe. And then he was Hanshi also in Jodo. So he was, I believe, I don't take me... <laughs> but he had his own Nakakura Cup, you know, the tournament. 
And I met this guy from Seattle, and he happened to be the member of PNKF Pacific Northwest Kendo Federation. And I approached him, and then he goes, oh, you should come to Seattle and practice with us. So we stayed in Alaska for 10 years without knowing anyone else in the United States. And then as soon as I met him, I went to Seattle to practice with people in Seattle, and they accepted us as a member. And then that was the time that Mr. Nakanishi, who was the founder of Alaska Kendo Club, left for Japan. So I had to run the club and I needed some support from someone. And I had a choice of going to Japan or going to lower 48. We call it lower 48, lower 48 states. <laughs> and so I found PNKF and it's been very supportive and I really appreciate their support. That was my showing appreciation to them, that, you know, the video that I made for, for the Yaido people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we get into your time helping to develop Kendo in Alaska, I just want to go back mm -hmm. to when you were a little younger. You said that you spent those 10, 12 days at the police Kendo place before you moved to Inuyama. When you right. moved, what, what was that feeling when you moved that you needed to, was it just that oh, I needed to join a club. And since I've done kendo before, okay, I'll just do it. Or were you pretty clear that you wanted to continue kendo after those 12 days and you would search for it wherever you went? I was fairly athletic at that time. And there was a test to get selected to any of the clubs, athletic clubs, like track meet and tennis clubs and volleyball and all that stuff. And I looked at all of them and then I the Kendall seemed to have been the most difficult, most challenging club that I thought. So I tried the test and I happened to be the top. I just passed it. Yeah. I was surprised that there are stuff that I've never done before in my life, like pull-ups and things like that. <laughs> but I did more than anyone else. So I was admitted and that's the start of my Kendall life. And then you said that when you moved to Osaka for university, you mm -hmm. needed to start up your own kendo practice? Right. I was in the dormitory. So there are like 200 people already there. And I just told everybody, you know, I'm starting a kendo session here at the cafeteria if you want to come and then we'll practice free. And then we, you know, gathered at the cafeteria and then practiced for a couple hours. And uh, then eventually the chef there were really annoyed by our sound. <laughs> and then uh, we had to kind of eventually fade it away and we did other sports instead. Okay. So that was more of a recreational thing because normally when I think right. of school clubs, there's just a practice and then there's tournaments with other schools and all that stuff. You weren't participating in those. No, hmm. not in college. I did lots of tournaments in middle school and high school and I got burned out of being really competitive tournament style and I was looking for something else. So it was one way it was a leisure or something fun, but in, on the other hand, it was seeking for more like Budo style kendo mm -hmm. and couldn't find it. Oh, of course, I didn't really look for it either. And that was probably the beginning of my search for Budo style kendo. And I also practice Iaido. The reason that I practice, I started Iaido after I moved to Alaska is part of it. So when, when we, I, 
is that okay to move yes. to Alaska? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm so curious. Why Alaska? <laughs> of all the well, places. I was on my way to go to Peru. <laughs> I studied history. My major was Western history at college, and I happened to take Southern American history. And wanted to study more. And the most abundant documents were written in English. So I wanted to study English first and then move down to Peru. And so I graduated from college and I saved money working for one year and then wanted to come to the United States to study English. Actually, Canada was part of my selections Vancouver, Seattle, Los Angeles you know, West Coast cities so that I can fly with just one flight, direct flight. And then Anchorage was one of those because we had direct flight at that time. And I didn't want any places that had lots of Japanese because I tend to stick with them, <laughs> probably. And then, you know, my week will and not too hot. Oh, Hawaii was one another place too. But, you know, I didn't want any place that is hot temperature wise. So I thought, well, Anchorage, Alaska, probably there's probably isn't any Japanese there and they speak English and then it's not hot. <laughs> so let's do that. It's only a short while, you know. <laughs> so I came to Anchorage, Alaska and then went to English Language Institute, spent one year. And then even though I graduated from a college in Japan, I wanted to review all the study that I did in Japanese in English. So I took uh, some classes towards my undergraduate degree again. But two years later, I applied for my postgraduate master's degree. And then American did, history. That was anthropology. But my degree is master of liberal arts. So I have a master in liberal arts and I finished the course. I had to go back to Japan. But right before that, one tour company that I was working asked me to work for them. They offered me to get a visa, which is green card. So I said, sure. So I went back to Japan and waited for one year for them to get everything ready. But while I was in Japan, I spent summer in Alaska working for them. But rest of the time I was teaching English and getting interpreter certificate so that I can work you know, temporarily in Japan to sustain my life there. And then I moved back to Anchorage. So at this point, your plans of going to Peru were all gone? Kind of. <laughs> Because, yeah, I wanted to, you know, while I was st uh, staying here in Anchorage, Alaska, I fell in love with the nature and people and everything. I still like to go to Peru and visit, but at this point, I'm still loving it. So, <laughs> yeah. But it was like two years after I came to the United States. I was too busy studying English and then tried to familiarize myself to the atmosphere and everything. And then I happened to find this guy who is just starting Kendo. And so we hooked up together and then started Kendo Club. Mm -hmm. You yeah, mentioned but, this is where your interest in pursuit of more Budo-like practices and... Right. But, you know, the sensei, role of sensei was done by Mr. Nakanishi. So I wasn't really teaching at that time. 
In 1994, when he left and then I inherited the club, I wanted to establish my way of teaching based on what people here wanted. Because in Japan, kendo is more of a sport event because after Meiji Restoration, the historically, they turned 180 degrees to westernize themselves. So all the Budo kind of changed to Western style, the walking and standing and moving, they were all changed. So at that point on, the Japanese people were trying to be Westernized, not just culture and technology, but their daily life self. And then after World War II, all the Budo were prohibited to practice by GHQ, General MacArthur. So they had to establish non-Budo type of, non-combat type of leisure thing. So they started Shinai Kyogi, and then it was actually Kendo, but they called it Shinai Kyogi. So it was more like a sport. They didn't even have Keikogi and Hakama. They had white, you know, shirt and, and trousers. So they are viewed as sport rather than Budo. That changed all the Budos completely. And then they were, even these days, the Japanese look at kendo as just、uh, part one of those competitive sports. But people here were different. So when we say in Japan, when people hear kendo, oh, kendo, kotemen, you know, with bogu and keikogi hakam. Here, kendo, swordsmanship, oh, yeah, toshiro mifune, yeah, samurai. The concept was totally different. You know, people here came to approach me with a sword. I have this sword and I want to know how to use it. It's like, okay, well, that's not me. <laughs> But then I thought, well, this may be actually the real thing that I should look at Kendo from the other prospect. So when I went to Japan, I was in tourism business and then doing, showing Japanese people what Alaska is all about. I had to go to Japan to promote our company. So we went to Japan and then I practiced there. And there were some senseis that think kendo is more budo than sport. So I met those senseis and then I started to read more old kenjutsu master stories and things like that. And also not budo, but bujutsu instructors teachings and so movements and stuff like that. Or that I was interested was more old style, Japanese old style, traditional. I don't want to say martial arts because martial arts is more like these days, it's like, you know, mixed martial arts type of, it's more、uh, competitive sport like thing. So it's bujutsu. I started to first introduce those philosophy because I wasn't good enough to teach how to move and stuff. But for Budo people, it's meaningless if you can't do it, if you can't show physically. So I tried to study those by myself. When I went to Japan, I go to the seminars and then see masters you know, moving and things like that. And I have the visual image. I didn't have any YouTube or video or anything at that time. So I had to either secretly record them and then. <laughs> And then view the recording number of times and then have the image. And then I practice like six months to one year and then go back to Japan again and then practice a little bit and then bring that back and then practice by myself for again six months to one year. And then I repeatedly do that for 
maybe I'm still doing it <laughs> since then. I didn't have any senseis that teaches me anything. I was just going everywhere. And of course, I went to Seattle and other places for kendo. But kendo in the United States were more competitive sport-like event. I didn't dislike it. I actually gained more knowledge by you know, going, being with them. And there are essences of Budo in kendo, especially in philosophy. So I really liked it. But I was seeking for more bujutsu type of movement and wanted to adapt that into kendo movement. But sometimes it's hard. So I started to study Iaido to see if I could use any of those techniques into Kendo. So, so Kendo and Iaido are, to me, are just tools to find out the old Japanese style movement, Budo type of movement. And I'm sure there are some of the masters in other styles. But I wanted to keep studying Kendo and Iaido because Kendo is directly from Kenjutsu where once masters completed the art. Another thing is that they were at that time killing technique, but it changed into actually 180 degree change. They were not to hurt people, but respect people. So I'm Nanadan in Kendo right now. And what I'm finding out these days is that Kendo is not to overwhelm your opponent, but to communicate with your opponent and show that you care. And if you can grow that feelings, you can actually adapt that into this fight. Practice. We say fighting, but it's basically it's a way to communicate with your opponent. And hitting guarded part does not really hurt your opponent, but we appreciate when we get hit. And that's one the receiving side of a feeling, and then so that we hit the guarded target, so that we can communicate. And another concept that. It was started with Alex Bennett, but he was really focusing on Zanshin, the concept of Zanshin. And I now understand that is, you know, usually you finish the blow and then you keep focusing on your opponent. But to me, the Zanshin is to show that you care about your opponent. That's why even after you hit the opponent and go through and then you turn around and then you go, are you okay? Let's, are you having fun? Let's continue on type of thing. So that's how I look at Zanshin now. It didn't used to be that way, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Kendo is not practical fighting form. Anything that has rules are not practical fighting uh, techniques, I say. But Kendo is probably the furthest away from all of those. And also a uh, difference between judo and karate and another combat uh, system is that kendo uses the sword. So the distance to your opponent is so far away. It's not really, it's, I'd say we, we are social distancing away from each other. <laughs> it's safe. <laughs> but that's another reason that you have to communicate with your opponent through the device.
which is shinai or sword. And it's more like uh, communication these days through Zoom, through a phone. And it's unique, I think. And that's what I was, have been fascinated by Kendo. Iaido teaches the old way of movement that I've been finding out. You can do Iaido katas with your daily movements too, but once you know the difference between old Japanese way of movement and the modern style of even walking, then it changes. So you can start Iaido with your daily your regular movement, but then when your skill level goes up, you will start finding out all those. And then Iaido teaches you how to do that naturally. So that's also fascinating. The only thing is that Iaido only has an imaginary opponent who always loses for you. <laughs> so you can't really feel actual pressure from your opponent. All these concepts that you're coming up with in terms of how Kendo's communication and Zanshin is about caring for the, the opponent, do you find that it's the, the distance you are because you're in Anchorage, Alaska, from these centers where it's more of a sport that has given you the opportunity to think more deeply about these concepts and that you don't get constantly bombarded by this other view? Do you see this, and second question would be, do you see nowadays that this understanding, it's more important, this Budo aspect is more important, that people are realizing that they should be bringing it back to the Kendo? Kendo exists its popularity because it's more competitive and, you know, there are tournaments. I'm sure, especially for kids, it's fun, the game type of you know, hitting in and getting hit and things like that. So I think that's important. But because I'm here, you know, naturally, it's not a competitive atmosphere. We don't have any tournaments. And we always have very small number of practitioners. So as long as I'm this, <laughs> I probably won't have hundreds of students. And but just some adult students, more adults. We do have kids coming at once and then leaves at once and then comes back and then, then leaves again. Type of, you know, uh, repetitious trends. And core members are always older people. The negative side is that those guys usually have physical difficulties or problems that they've already have so that they study maybe you know 10 years and then they have to leave because they can't move anymore type of thing so you know i constantly go into those challenges but i think because i'm remote i can keep this way also we have no resources limited resources for budo study but we have lots of natural resources i can go into the woods and then i can feel those power of nature and old samurais train themselves in the woods and then i can i can probably just imagine what it was like it's probably easier to do it here you know my house is in anchorage alaska it's a population of well, it's the biggest city in Alaska, but you know I can just drive 10 minutes and then go middle of nowhere. So it's really close to the nature, and those are helping also. 
I've heard a lot about nature in Alaska. Could you maybe describe a little bit, maybe even compare it to Inuyama? That's also out in the wilderness, but those are two very different types of natural surroundings. Could you describe the differences and what, what it's like to be? When I was in Japan, in Inuyama, there are mountains and, you know, lakes and ponds and things like that. But most of the places were all paved to get there. And then the woods are all, how do you say, prepared. People already made it look good. Alaska, there are some woods just around the corner. No one had been inside. You can't really go in because there are so much shrubs and everything they basically refuse for us to go in. The nature is so severe and stubborn and sometimes it's hard to say. So there, there are places that no one had stepped in. There are lots of those places here. So the depth of the nature is different. When I first came to Alaska, I realized what woods really is. I mean, I've never seen jungles, but probably there are places that practically refuses for people to get in. <laughs> like, wow, I can't step in here. <laughs> and, you know, in Japan, everywhere is welcome. You can go in if you like. The natures are not that stubborn. Yeah. So I feel more power from those and I can appreciate. And of course, the harsh weather here, well, harsher, more north. And I've experienced 60 degree below in Arctic. And it's just, you can never think of, you can never imagine how harsh it is. I can probably step out from the vehicle and then stay there for 10 minutes or so without really breathing in deeply. And then I have to come back to live, to stay alive. But animals are living there in that atmosphere, like 60 below. And some living creatures are around. And it's incredible. And that's power too. So um, feeling the power. Yeah, I can imagine is, what you're saying is that in modern day, there's very few places in the world where you go and you actually fear for your life in a way mm -hmm. that's like in the olden days where you're always, it's always a struggle to survive. And when mm -hmm. you say trying to tap into that energy of what those people were thinking back in the day, you need to go to a place like that. And when you said nature is stubborn, it's like, we don't want humans here and they can easily just get rid of you. If they want. It. Yeah, I could totally imagine that, that sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I, I did want to ask is that when I was a kid, my parents are from Hong Kong. And as a kid, we would always go back every few years. And at that time, there were either not very many direct flights or there weren't any existing. Anchorage was the hub. I would mm. visit, I would be there every couple of years. And I'd imagine that that site would make that city quite busy a lot of the time. But nowadays, when there's a lot more direct flights, and you probably would have seen it. So what's happened with the city of Anchorage over that period of time in the 80s when it really got busy and then now the flights don't need to stop there? Well, actually, passenger flights don't stop there anymore. But even when passenger flights were stopping there, they're stopping there for refueling. Passengers did not get outside of the airport. Oh, that's so true, yes. The city of Anchorage is the same. And cargo planes still stop there because they want to carry as much load as possible so they have only half the tank full of fuel so that they can carry more stuff. That's money. 
So they always stop in Anchorage and then get refilled and then they go everywhere. You know, Alaska is considered as the end of the world, but it's actually at the center of the world, center of the Northern Hemisphere, because it only takes like six hours to Europe, six hours to East Coast, and then, you know, all other places. Yeah. So cargo flights, there are more cargo flights in, in Anchorage. That's why Federal Express headquarters here, and so is UPS. Back in the day, of course, it was much harder to communicate outside of your region. But nowadays, mm-hmm. when internet is like you're posting stuff on YouTube, you can find other people's things on YouTube. What are you right. finding most useful these days now that you have more access to people all around the world? What are you using or leveraging to either maintain connection or to inform your practice? I try not to inform our practice to the world <laughs> because I'm just anonymous. staying low profile, trying to keep it only here. But U.S. Kendo and Iaido community brought me up to where I am right now. So I wanted to show appreciation to them. And that's why I did the video, which is unlisted, but also I did my own translation on uh, Iaido, Japanese Iaido textbook. And that is not unlisted. that anyone can get it if they want. Uh, But I'm here physically away from everybody. I'm just doing my own thing. And it is very, those YouTube videos and resources that I can get through online, YouTube and other blogs of people. So I go through them a lot these days, especially these days because of the Corona uh, virus pandemic. More people are becoming more YouTubers and showing what they're doing. And that is really interesting. And then I watch lots of Kendo YouTubes and Karate and Aikido and Iaido and not just those, but other sports events like running and MMA and boxing and all those. I look at them from my viewpoint. I'm not really, you know, of course, I'm simply enjoying the combat, but I'm also trying to find out their movement, how they move and how they mentally prepared, how they practice type of thing. So I'm really interested in those. That's cool. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so open with how to, how you discovered your thought, your thinking towards this practice. I think it's been very informative for me just seeing the depth of insight you can gain from even being in such a remote area that if someone is really passionate about studying this material, it doesn't matter where they are or how much access they are, they will find a way. Right. Yeah. It's getting so, easier these days. Because of this technology, you know, nowadays you don't have to go to work to <laughs> your office. You can stay home and then still do the work that was impossible 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And studying martial arts or Budo or anything else is probably the same way. You can get resources much, much easier these days. So, you know, the only things thing is you have to be very careful because when you go to the wrong direction, there's no one to correct you but yourself. <laughs> Great reminder. Thank you so much. Just to finish this off, knowing that I know you said you, you're keeping low prof- profile in your little zone, but this episode of this podcast, this interview will be shared with people in Europe, in North America, Australia, Asia, 
Do you have anything that you want to say coming from someone, maybe talk about Alaska or talk about your experience, anything you want to share as closing thoughts? Yes, we are really looking forward to meeting people from everywhere in the world. If you could, we have Bogu and Keikogi and Shinai and everything, or we have a, a practice board. If you are able to come spend a couple of days or a week or, you know, rest of your life, <laughs> you are very welcome to Alaska Kendo Club to practice with us. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And hopefully I didn't bore the listeners. You no, know, my I, personal life is not that great. So <laughs> I found it fascinating. And to you me, that's all that matters. To... Yes. So thank oh, you. Good. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> you right. for bringing me in. Absolutely. It was, it was very nice talking to you. You too. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast.tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening.